All sensors are functioning. Gene, are you going into space someday? What do you think you're going to be doing up there? Treasure hunting? Bounty hunting? No, pirate hunting. Close your eyes! Why are those pirates after you? We're after the same treasure. Hand over, Melvina! What the hell makes that girl such a special prize? Go! The enemy is closing in. Now you're about to see how good I can really be. It seems that we have underestimated our opponents. Outlaws never go down easy. Howdy y'all, and welcome back to the Treehouse Anime Club. This is my podcast where I talk about anime production and the fine folks who make it all possible. My name is Dave, and I am the creator and host of this program. And this week, we are covering Outlaw Star, animated by Sunrise Studio, directed by Mitsuru Hongo, and loosely based on the manga by Takehiko Ito from Morning Star Studios. But before we blast off, I got to do the thing where I promote the show. So the Treehouse Anime Club is on the air, courtesy of Spotify for Podcasters. Spotify is, of course, our main platform. You can also find us on most major providers or copy our RSS link into your platform of choice. We post new episodes twice a month, usually on the first and third Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Central. You can follow along with the show at Instagram, the Treehouse Anime Pod. This is all one word, all lowercase. So the Treehouse Anime Pod on Instagram. You can stay up to date with the show, plus a couple of extra goodies. We also have a Discord. So if you follow one of my links into the Treehouse Anime Club Instagram, you can find not just the our homepage on Spotify for podcasters, you can also uh, receive that free Discord invite. We have a really great community growing over there, and I think you would find yourself very welcome here. I would also appreciate it if you left a review from whichever platform you're listening from. Seriously, it really does help the show. It really helps uh, get us out there to more folks. And, you know, any and all engagement really helps the show. The support really does mean a lot. But most importantly, I am glad that you decide to make my little show about Japanese cartoons part of your day. So I'm going to lead things off uh, just kind of given a general rundown of, you know, what have I been up to in uh, since the last episode and uh, just some general updates on the podcast as well. It's been just over two months since I sprained my ankle. And actually, I, I think I sprained my ankle shortly after publishing episode five. So it's been about 10 weeks now. And I'm happy to report that I'm back to my regular walking schedule. I can also jog now, but I'm only doing that on like perfectly flat surfaces with no obstacles. And it is also really good to be back in the woods. My boots, of course, have better ankle support than my running shoes, but I am still taking it slower and uh, avoiding stump holes best I can, kind of leaning a little heavily on my walking stick in the woods, but I don't have, I'm pretty much pain-free aside from just very small soreness after walking uh, a long distance at the end of the day. So now it's really just more about building up my ankle. So speaking of taking a trip, I recently took one. Uh, granted, it was for business, so it did involve a uh, hotel stay. 
And I did have a lot of free time on my hands. I was able to work a little bit on the podcast, but it was mostly I had my physical notebook and was working off of my phone. But during my hotel room stay, I got bored and decided to check out this mall next to me. And lo and behold, there was this hobby store. But what caught my attention about this store is that this window, that the store's window was absolutely filled with Gundam model kits. And of course, I've been kind of going down the Gunpla YouTube rabbit hole ever since I saw a video of Adam Savage. He has a, you know, from Mythbusters, he had a, a, a channel on YouTube called Adam Savage's uh, Tested. And there's this video of him and his team building a perfect grade, like top of the line model kit of the RX-78 Gundam. And he was like a, a one day build with his team. And he was just having the time of his life. He'd never built a Gundam before. And this was, of course, a sponsored thing by Bandai. But after watching that video, YouTube decided, oh, you want all the Gunpla videos. And it turns out they are really cool to just put on in the background if I'm doing a lot of data stuff. I don't have to pay too much attention. So here I am in front of this hobby store, and it's just filled with physical Gundam model kits. And of course, I don't have anything like this near me. So I am in this store just looking at everything looking at the entry grade all the way up to the super complicated, super fiddly, uh, perfect grade stuff. And I'm in that store for just several minutes and I eventually walk out because I got to go to dinner with my coworkers. Well, all throughout dinner with my coworkers, I'm having conversations and I'm just thinking about them model kits. I'm like, man, I don't know the first time, I, this is my first time seeing these things in the wild. Some of those were actually pretty cheap for what I know is a really good quality build given the price. You know, man, I, I kind of want one. So after supper with my coworkers, I was back in that store and not even five minutes later, I'm leaving with an entry level, uh, what's called a high grade kit of the Gundam Barbatos from Iron Blooded Orphans series. So I'm, it's not going to be my only model kit, I don't think, but I also don't want to fill my media shelves more than they already are with just a bunch of robots. Plus, I also don't know if the cats are going to leave them alone both during the building portion and the uh, once they're actually assembled. So I don't want to build the Gundam Barbados only to have to box it up because Link the cat will not leave it alone. But hopefully this is going to go well. Hopefully I don't break anything. I'm definitely going to do uh, something of a bonus episode of my journey. I mean, I know it's only a high grade kit, but I'm probably going to film like my reactions. Like this is my first Gunplay kit, so I want to at least document it in some ways. But more than likely, it's just going to be a bunch of photos and then film my reactions to like key pieces coming together. I'll probably uh, whip something together for either Instagram or something on the Discord uh, might be, and then just kind of sum up with a bonus episode, just kind of talking about my experience with it. Just as a, you know, if I can get a, you know, a content creator mindset, Ugh, I can't believe that those words just came out of my mouth, but that's kind of an idea that I've been floating around. Just, you know, I think it'd be a fun episode. My first Gunpla kit. And speaking of Gundam, I've been also, uh, I did just start the Iron-Blooded Orphans uh, series again. I mentioned in my uh, Mobile Suit Gundam episode that Iron-Blooded Orphans was one of those shows that I tried when it first came out. I certainly enjoyed the show. It's just one of those I watched it. I think it was I watched the first half or like that first series. And then when it came back for uh, part two, I just never picked it back up. So I'm watching uh, a little bit of Iron-Blooded Orphans in between everything else because it's very different from just everything else that I'm watching right now. So really quickly, I've been catching up on the summer season in preparation for the fall. Of the couple anime I've been watching, uh, three of basically stayed on top. 
And at the top of that top <laughs> is, of course, Undead Murder Farce. This is one, like, just a complete Dark Horse series for me. I had no idea just how much I would be enjoying this show. But, like, it is just amazing. You've got everything from the, the gothic aesthetic of Victorian London. And all you had to tell me was, you're telling me you're, we're going to have this supernatural series where you've got vampires and werewolves running around. Sherlock Holmes versus Moriarty. We're doing it again. You've got characters like Carmilla the Vampire. You have Victor Frankenstein, this giant zombie dude. Jack the Ripper, he be ripping. So like Undead Murder Farce has just quickly become my favorite show this season. I love that show. For short, following uh, immediately behind is a series on High Dive called Dark Gathering, which was made by, which is based on a manga written by the guy who did uh, Tony Kawa Over the Moon. So it's that art style set to horror. And I really love that supernatural, it's almost like Ghostbusters, but really, really dark. And it's a series about capturing ghosts to put them in a giant cage match and then to capture even stronger ghosts to then go kill like a, a god tier ghost, I guess. And it's been very interesting to, to watch the progression of the characters in that one. So I really think High Dive just scored another sleeper hit with Dark Gathering. And then, of course, uh, Zom 100, Bucket List of the Dead, the zombie series that's just inverting a lot of zombie tropes. But it's really a show about finding your passion and chasing your dreams, never letting them go, like never letting the, your day-to-day just absorb your life. Always keep an eye on your freedom. Like you are never like you're worth so much more than just being tied to a job so of all the things that i thought would be my favorite shows i never expected three supernatural horror or horror adjacent series to be my favorite another high dive hit uh helk has also been a big surprise for me the animation on that show has been more on par with like a lower budget comedy series and really like an action show and it is still it is primarily a comedy series but it has it's trying to be like a battle series as well. So it's kind of writing this line. So the characters and the jokes have to carry the show pretty hard. And luckily they do. The characters are very engaging and it's not all just comedy yuck yucks. This show has depth well beyond that. And so I've really been enjoying Hulk and I have been chuckling for much of every episode. I've been saying it a couple of times and I will keep on saying it. High Dive just keeps getting the sleeper hits of every season and I will continue to promote them as well worth your monthly five bucks. One show that I did let go for now, and not for any reason of its, not for any of its faults, but I did let go of uh, Horimiya Missing Pieces, and only because by its nature, it's a bunch of side stories with no real connecting threads in terms of chronology, unless you count uh, one of the characters, Miyamura, who's, he has a, as I call him, pre and post haircut, or like this is a show where as good as the anime adaptation was, I believe in 2021, yeah, as good as that adaptation was, it did also leave a lot of the manga um, off on the cutting room floor. So this is filling in those missing pieces. And so I would say don't go into this show unless you've already uh, read uh, the webcomic or the manga or any of the other adaptations of Horimiya, or like me, you watch the anime. In between the anime and this season, I read the entire Horimiya manga. So for me, Missing Pieces is very nice, but I'm still very fresh off that manga. So this is something that I'm just going to slowly work on through the year. I'm in no hurry to get this done. And I'm just trying to, I think with these, with my main uh, four series that I 
outlined earlier, I think those are going to be the ones that I am going to like really focus on getting done. And then I'll see if there's anything else that I probably missed that I can catch up. And going forward, I will say like for a upcoming podcast schedule, my fall preview episode, I know like basically every podcast did their fall previews weeks ago. My fall preview episode will also include my summer wrap up thoughts and it's going to drop sometime between episodes 11 and 12 of the podcast. So about uh, second week in October, maybe that should give me enough time to watch the first episode of all the shows that I'm excited for, because pretty much everything is premiering uh, either in the first week or the second week of October. So we'll see if there's a few shows that I might hold out for. But for the most part, I think it'll be around that time period. And I don't want to split my summer thoughts and then my fall preview into two episodes like this, just smash them together into one. It's not going to be that long anyways. But I think the fall season, I am very excited for the fall season. It's going to be a big deal to me. And it's going to break my heart when I have to drop a bunch of episodes for time. Like there's just, there are right now, there are like 10 shows I'm looking at. And I know I'm going to have to whittle that list down to like six. So that's a sampling of my thoughts at the moment. And we have one more segment before we get into the show proper. I want to, before I turn the focus fully on the journey of Outlaw Star, I want to turn the focus to you, the community, because now it's time to turn on the Listener Spotlight. So Listener Spotlight is a chance for the community to uh, basically voice their thoughts and opinions, both on the podcast and on Outlaw Star in particular. So we have four comments this week. Our first comment coming from Big Kid 782 and he says, Outlaw Star is another one of my favorite anime. I love the dynamic between Jim and the crew, especially between Jim and Gene. I always enjoyed how it brought Old West gunslinging, pirates, and a touch of mech battling together and made it all work. This was one of those shows I thank Toonami for introducing me to. Yeah, Outlaw Star owes a lot of its... Uh, well, there, there's not a lot of relevance, honestly, nowadays for Outlaw Star, but Outlaw Star also owes a lot of its early relevance to Toonami and that wide broadcasting of Adult Swim. When I think of Toonami, it is one of the first shows that pops into my head after, you know, DBZ, Gundam Wing, and then Outlaw Star is usually like third or fourth place after Raroni Kenshin. Our next comment it comes from Storm Beagle. And they say, Outlaw Star was a show I made absolutely sure I didn't miss. This is my first taste of the space western anime genre and I loved it. Will be neat to hear more about it on the episode. Yeah, absolutely, Storm Beagle. Rest assured, you're going to learn plenty about Outlaw Star on this episode. And I love, I've always loved Space Western as a genre, even well before I uh, discovered it in anime. Our next comment comes from Reran, who says, Outlaw Star was the tits. I always made sure to catch it and Tenchi Muyo after school when I was living in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I understand. I was also living in the middle of nowhere during much of the time that I saw uh, like the advertisements for Toonami's stuff. Again, most of it's 2000s or like early 2000s runs, like the turn of the, the, the millennia. I was just too young to watch any of it or like stay up late. But I completely understand the pain of trying to grab that one time slot that it's there and hoping that your cable signal is strong, or like your satellite signal is strong enough to make it through the whole way. Cause I, I, I can understand that whole country living, living in the woods. That's kind of where I am now. And lastly, and certainly not least, we have Fallen Snow Kiku. He says, I never caught Outlaw Star when I was younger, but I did watch it for the first time about two and a half years ago via Hulu. Outlaw Star ticked all the rights boxes for me. 
great action, fun story, and interesting world building. I was shocked to discover it was based on a very short-lived manga that met, never made it out in English, and the only continuation was a brief spin-off OVA. I'd love to visit that world again someday. You and me both, Kiku. There are so many uh, cool details and world building and just the universe of Outlaw Star is rich with potential. And it's kind of heartbreaking that we just haven't really gotten anything else. And so I'll get into that a little bit in the episode and particularly in the review roundup. And so that is it for our listener spotlight. I'm going to leave you for a moment and then we are going to come back and get the show on the road with the main topic. All right, welcome back to the main topic. So we're going to start things off, as always, with a brief synopsis of Outlaw Star. So the first thing to know is that the setting is called a Toward the Stars era. This is a universe in which spacecraft have, of course, achieved faster-than-life travel. Space is the new frontier, a new ocean for adventurers to bravely step forward and seize their fortunes, provided they survive the trip. Space is mainly inhabited by three major factions. You have the Federation, which is as close to a governing body as you can get in this uh, Wild West setting. You have the Pirates, who are further split into uh, clans and crime families. These guys basically dominate the frontier with magic. Yes, I did not stutter. That's magic. And between these two major groups, you have the Outlaws which is kind of like a catch-all for the freelance adventurers who aren't affiliated with any of the other groups. You also have various alien races and empires which have their own sets of rules and allegiances. So Outlaw Star follows Gene Starwind and his 11-year-old partner Jim Hawking, who run a small business on the backwater planet of Sentinel-3. We're talking tractor repairs and odd jobs, and also freelance bounty hunters on the side. But all that changes the day a mysterious woman named Hilda hires them for a bodyguarding job, which of course turns out to be anything but. Now, thrust into a mysterious conflict they don't fully understand, and with a motley crew of an android, an assassin, and an angry cat girl, they're on the run from both the Federation, the pirates, and vengeful bounty hunters, all gunning for the same prize, a legendary treasure trove known only as the Galactic Leyline. But this crew has one thing going in their favor— They have the galaxy's most advanced ship, the Outlaw Star. Now, if they can only make enough money to keep the ship running. Ain't that the truth? The original creator of Outlaw Star is the manga artist Takehiko Ito. Outlaw Star manga is his best-known work, but he's done far more. He's also worked with Studio Sunrise on several projects, and a few that I'll mention soon. He is the founder of the Morning Star Studio, which he founded in his 20s, which he uses for uh, anime and video game designs. He also developed the original concepts for series called Knights of Ramun in the 1990 and Zegapane in 2006, both produced by Studio Sunrise. He works under the pseudonym Hiroyuki Haitake for much of his animation credits, and under this pseudonym, he's contributed design assistance work to several science fiction projects. We're talking Pat Labor the Movie, El Hazar, The Magnificent World, the Vision of es- Escaflone, and the even the first 26 episodes of Yu-Gi-Oh! 5Ds. Hiroyuki Haitake is also the name of the man who came up with the earliest known draft of Unicron from Transformers before he worked on the Transformers brand proper. Haitake-san provided Takara Tomi with uh, illustration work for pre-Transformers franchise Diaclone. And Ito-san has an even earlier pseudonym, and this is the name Blackpoint, the name he used when writing the dark, futuristic science fiction manga One-Shot, Good Morning Althea, 
later adapted into an OVA in 1987. Ito's first serialized work was Uchio Eiyu Monogatari, or Space Hero Story, uh, originally run in Kodansha's Comic Comp from 1988 to 1992, canceled due to the magazine's closure, and later picked up in Shueisha's Ultra Jump, where the story concluded in 1996. Space Hero Story is very important to the setting of Outlaw Star, as several themes and concepts from this manga were brought back for Outlaw Star and developed further. And he also says that Space Hero Story was more for like a younger audience where he wanted to like bring those elements into a more uh, adult setting for Outlaw Star. This manga also established the setting of the Toward the Stars era universe, which it shares with Outlaw Star and Angel Links. Unfortunately, there is no official English release of Space Hero Story. Ito's next manga was Hayotaki Ryunite, or Lord of Lords Ryunite. Again, there's no direct relation to Outlaw Star, but this is the manga that precedes Outlaw Star in publication. This series ran in Shueisha's V-Jump, starting from uh, 1993 and ran until 1995 for three volumes. So listen to this. Ryunite was adapted by Studio Sunrise into anime and ran for 52 episodes. It also gained two OVA series, an additional 17 episodes, plus two video games. So as you can see, there's no direct relation between Ryunite and Outlaw Star, but with this work immediately preceding Outlaw Star manga and publication, there are a lot of eyes on Ito-san going into this next work. So, how did it do? Let's talk about the Outlaw Star manga for a little bit. So Outlaw Star was serialized in Shueisha's monthly Ultra Jump magazine from 1996 to 1999. It ran from 21 chapters. 17 of which were compiled into three volumes. Each book also contains information that explains much of the series universe. And we're talking politics, uh, ship designs, character profiles, you name it. These are like the little liner notes in there. So first off, as you heard from Fallen Snow Kiku, this manga is not officially available in English, but there was an official release uh, apparently planned. Uh, unfortunately, that fell through and as well as the fan translations. I did check out the Outlaw Star fan translations, like the Scanlations, and these are also unfinished. However, the Planet Manga Company published Outlaw Star in German and Italian. There's also a Chinese version of the manga published in Hong Kong by Sharp Point Press. What English cans are available, uh, I found, told a very different tale from the more lighthearted anime setting. But still, you can see a lot of the anime's early DNA here, uh, particularly the world design and the spaceships, of which Ito-san states he took a lot of influence from Chinese culture and architecture. As far as what I think of the manga, um, it's, 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 it exists... The character of Gene Starwin is about the only consistent factor between the manga and the anime. He's brought over mostly unchanged into the anime, just with a few edges sand off. Also, if you are going to read Outlaw Star, the manga, uh, be aware this manga is very horny. Like, literally, literally the first page. Like, and We haven't even gotten to the first real like chapter page. This is like chapter one. This is the title chapter. The first page of the manga is a fully naked Melfina, like the android Melfina. Also, like Hilda very clearly explains that even though Melfina is indeed crucial for running the Outlaw Star spaceship, her base form was taken from a sex bot? Like, like, this is how the character is introduced. Melfina has so much more agency in the anime, and I'm just like, dude. And just various shots of cheesecakes. Again, like when, when Melfina is the, the central engine for the Outlaw Star, obviously it's very 
obviously yeah, she ain't got no clothes on in that spaceship. But at least the anime like covers her up. Uh, nope, not in the manga. It, again, nothing. There's not really anything left to the imagination on that one. But as for the story, I would say it covers up to about maybe episode six to eight of the anime. We also have the introduction of Twilight Suzuka before the crew leaves uh, Sentinel-3 with Hilda. Uh, however, the Beast Girl, uh, Aisha Clan Clan, is there, but she's more like a mysterious hooded figure and really doesn't even have any speaking roles. Like, she's just there. She, I don't think she was really ready to be introduced yet. Again, this is like three pages is all I really got of Aisha Clan Clan. And she seems to be like some sort of undercover agent because shortly after she was introduced, that's when the English scanlation uh, ended. So maybe she was one of the parties tracking Hilda. Hilda also was um, a lot more sinister in the manga as well. She, of course, double cr- tries to double cross the crew in the anime. But this is something like I was really unsure about her allegiances going into the manga, even when she did take Jean and them into space. And I'll be honest, the manga really didn't hold my interest apart from the historical perspective for the anime. Again, it's the biggest surprise for me was just how adult this manga was. I was not expecting that. So just kind of be warned if you are going to check it out. But again, I'm not going to say the manga is bad, but I mean, 21 chapters of a monthly series and they barely get off a of Sentinel 3. Like there's no plot to really be, well, really 17. There's no plot to be resolved. It just ends. So our next little bit, let's get into the anime adaptation now. So of course, I'm going to start things off with a brief uh, studio rundown for Studio Sunrise. So Studio Sunrise was founded in 1972 by former members of Mushi Productions from the sales and production side of the industry. So Mushi Pro was owned by the late, great Osamu Tezuka. Uh, Sunrise's former names have been uh, Shoeisha, uh, Sunrise Studio, and Nippon Sunrise. Although its current name is the very corporate Bandai Namco Filmworks, the company is still referred to as Sunrise, at least by us, the fans, uh, for for the most part, despite all the name changes. Sunrise has been like its de facto name. Uh, Most of the studio's works are, of course, original titles created in-house by their writing and animation staff, uh, collectively referred to by the pseudonym Hajime Yatate. But... Sunrise also has an incredibly deep catalog of light novel and manga adaptations, of course, including Outlaw Star and Angel Links. Some other examples, just from my favorites, uh, Inuyasha, Gintama, uh, Sergeant Frog, also another personal favorite of mine, Planetess. So let's get into Outlaw Star proper. The anime was directed by Mitsuru Hongo. He started his career in the early 80s as an animator, uh, storyboarder, episode director, so a couple of works previous to Outlaw Star, he's best known for directing the popular comedy series uh, Crayon Shinchan. He directed the first 198 episodes, or roughly 13 seasons. Uh, so that basically kept him busy, plus the movies, until 1996. He moved over to a six-episode uh, OVA series, uh, Shamanic Princess, and then after that, he was brought on board to direct Outlaw Stars. He's done a couple projects since Outlaw Star. He worked on the uh, Raideen, uh, 2007 remake of the original 1975 series. He also worked on World Trigger, a 2014 fantasy series. He also did a special episode of uh, One Piece, Luffy's Adventure on Hand Island, set in the New World storyline, and this precedes the One Piece film Zed. Uh, right now, he's best known as the director of the popular isekai fantasy series Ascendance of a Bookworm. Character designs on Outlaw Star were done by Takuya Saito, He's also the animation director on a couple of episodes, uh, that being the first one, uh, episode 8, and the final episode 26. 
Previously, he was also the character designer for Knights of Ramun, so that's one project that he's worked on with uh, Takehiko Ito prior to Outlaw Star. Uh, most recently, he's been attached to a couple of Studio Trigger projects. So, Esu Gridman and Dinazion, the movie Premiere, and of course, Cyberpunk Edge Runners. So, he was a key animator on that show. So, you can see a little bit of his animation flexes both in Promare and Cyberpunk. The series composition, the head writer, was done by Katsuhiko Chiba. So they did also were involved with the screenplay for episodes of Knights of the Moon. He worked on Gundam Wing, uh, Slayers, also uh, Lord of Lords, uh, Ryu Knights. So again, a couple of other Ito adaptations in there, plus Gundam Wing. He's w- very well known for uh, science fiction writing, but he can also tackle some gag scripts. So more recent projects have been uh, for Tiger Mask W, which it's not a gag series, but it's a... Uh, professional wrestling series that honestly doesn't get enough attention so i'm so for animation direction it's another series that like trigun in episode five this is a show where you just had this large staff of individual animation directors so the episode quality of outlaw star and the animation quality i'm not going to say it had the quality swings that trigun did but you can see uh, some examples so it is a series where the animation quality can vary So if you have a particular animation sequence or like a standout episode, this is where I encourage you to, again, this is a very, the purpose of this podcast is to give like a very top level overview of who did what. So when you have something like almost a dozen animation directors, this is a case of if there's a favorite episode of yours, I encourage you to check out uh, the anime database or AnyDB. You can also check out uh, Anime News Network. They have an entire encyclopedia where you can kind of see who did what, who was the animation director, who was your favorite key animator. This is where I would say check out whatever your favorite uh, episode is. So getting a little bit more into the details now, we have Mechanical Designs by uh, Junya Ishigaki. And this guy has had an interesting career starting in 1990 with uh, guest mechanical designs on Brave X Kaiser, which was the first of what would become known as the Brave series franchise. And in the, in the 90s, this is a very important series for reviving the super robot genre by both reputation and toy sales. So the Brave series was essentially this co-production of Sunrise and the toy company Takarotomi. And it was a thing of super robots were all the rage in really like the 70s and 80s, and they started to fall off. And so the 90s was a way that this Brave series is a way for Sunrise and the toy company to kind of bring that market back. So a couple of other works that he's uh, worked on, he was, of course, on a design assistance for the Gundam F-91 movie. He was chief mechanical design on the movie's uh, Victory Gundam. And if you're a fan of Gundam Wing, and particularly those robot designs, Junya Ishigaki is your man. He went freelance in 1998 and also expanded his design works to shows like Full Metal Alchemist, the original as well as its follow-up movie, uh, The Conqueror of Shambhala. So he expanded his, his design works into creature design. So he designed the Chimera for Full Metal Alchemist. So you can thank him as well for Edward. Uh, creature design, he also worked on Del Toro Quest, Dragonaut the Resonance, where it's, uh, again, another etchy series. He designed both uh, dragons and mechs. So it's a, it's a show where sexy girls transform into dragons, which the dragons can also transform into robots. It is, <laughs> it is an interesting series. And he also worked on a creature design for the final season of Shakugan no Shana. And he came back for the mech designs on the Gundam Build Fighters and the Build Divers series. So speaking of 
design assistance because there was uh, quite a couple of mechanical designs going around. So Junior didn't do all this by himself. And there's one name I also want to highlight that was a guy who was very crucial to Outlaw Star's design because on design assist, or at least credited to the design assistance, we have Shoji Kawamori. This is the man who designed the Outlaw Star spaceship for the show. He is the creator and also co-creator on almost every chapter of the very popular Macross series since the beginning, and this is during his time at Studio Nui. In addition to Macross, he designed the original concepts for Aquarion, as well as the vision of Escaflone. So he's a, he's a guy who designed a lot of those mechs. Other projects that used his designs, we have the popular OVAs, uh, Crusher Joe. Excellent designs, excellent mech, excellent OVAs. People need to, y'all need to watch Crusher Joe. Of course, he was uh, involved with Ghost in the Shell. He was also involved with Eureka 7. Just, there's so many more. He also designed practically every aircraft or the, the variable fighters in every, all the Macross series. And that's kind of the kicker here for Outlaw Star because Kawamori's key mechanical design innovations in this design field is the concept of transforming mecha. So you have the variable fighters, as they're called in Macross, and it's this concept of your standard aircraft or truck or whatever suddenly rearranges itself into a fighting robot, which sound, should sound very familiar because Kawamori is also designed transforming toys for Takara Tomi's Diaclone toy line in the 80s. He was a really big designer for that. Of course, again, Diaclone being the predecessor for Hasbro's Transformers toy line. And Shoji Kawamori created a few toys that would become very popular characters in early Transformers lines. We're talking Prowl, uh, Blue Streak, Ironhide, and Ratchet, to name a few. Oh, and there's one other robot named Convoy, otherwise known as Optimus Prime. You can thank Shoji Kawamori. Other mecha, mech designers that came in... Uh, we have Yoshinori Sayama. He was a mech designer and also on the art team for several iconic series. So we have everything in Gundam. He was also uh, involved with the Pat Labor movies, uh, Macross, as well as Space Battleship Yamato 2199. So that's the 2012 reboot series of that uh, legendary series. And so he was on the art and mechanical design team for a lot of the vehicles and other spacecraft for Outlaw Star. Also, the third design assistance credit goes to Yutaka Minowa, who is a name that you will see attached to basically every Yoshiaki Kawajiri project as a character designer and an animation director. So you can thank Yutaka Minowa for designing characters and uh, directing the animation on Ninja Scroll, Vampire Hunter D, Bloodlust, and the Animatrix. And he's currently attached to the Netflix revival of The uh, Bastard, heavy metal dark fantasy series. And that is another show with just several animation directors. But yeah, Yutaka Minowa is a big name in the series. And you can see some of that smoothness of the animation can certainly be attributed to him. So these men, these four men, uh, define the look and function of Outlaw Star's uh, spacecraft and combat. And of course, when you're talking about spaceships and Outlaw Star, we're of course talking about the grappler ships. These are ships that deploy, well, grappler arms. These are special combat manipulators that take a lot of skill and the aid of supercomputers for pilots to control. Uh, honestly, it's a very long-winded way to say a really cool and clever excuse is to have spaceships punch each other in the face. <laughs> I mean, what else What else can I say? And of course, there's an in-universe reason as to why grappler ships are a big deal, but I already told you the, real, the actual reason. It's spaceships punching each other in the face. And I mean, what better visual... Can I describe this as 
than the outlaw star going into battle. In one grappler arm, it's wielding a machine gun. In its other arm, it's wielding a freaking battle axe. I mean, it's so absurd, but it's like the coolest thing I can say. You got this spaceship with two arms, a machine gun, a bat, and a battle axe. And when those run out, it just goes straight punching in the face. It's just so awesome. These grappler ships are so cool. Who cares the function or absurdity of it? It's the cool factor, I tell you. And helping to bring this rule of cool to the big screen, we have the art director, Toshihisa Koyama, who works as a background artist for a lot of Sunrise and Studio Dean titles. He was also the art director on uh, the original Shaman King, Fate Stay Night, as well as Fate Stay Night Unlimited Blade Works. So the man can do, the man knows his stuff. And so putting all this together, we're talking the animation direction, the mechanical design, the art direction, just the general world building. Outlaw Star just represents the epitome of Sunrise's reputation for stellar animation work. There's a term used to describe uh, this style called like Sunrise Smooth. The animation just is so fluid during uh, key action moments. It feels like I'm watching at a much higher frame rate than what's really being animated, especially with the just how beautiful the Blu-ray cleanup is. And the world of Outlaw Star is just so wacky and fun. Gene's world of Sentinel-3 looks relatively grounded and, you know, Earth-like with the occasional flickering of holograms and hover vehicles to remind you just enough that, yes, this is the world of the future. You also, uh, once you get outside of Sentinel-3, however, like the universe literally opens up. The alien designs are a little bit more pronounced. You know, again, most of the aliens don't get too crazy. Like the majority of them are still humanoid. So the motif more or less follows animals. So, for example, you have the the Beast Man, the proud Kataral Kataral in Asia Clan Clan. These are aliens who evolved from cats. You get one episode where you see a dragon kin walking around. There's a character that I'm going to talk about later named Swanzo. He's basically a frogman in a suit. Uh, the locales of Outlaw Star also take on just a ton of color. And this is where you can also see the various elements of Chinese culture that have been integrated into the, sec- into the setting. And we're talking like kind of like broad strokes Chinese culture. Um, we're talking like the curved tiled roofs, you got the doorway arches, the, the colors of the reds and the greens and the gold, uh, the dress of robes and long sleeves, you know, they got the hats of the passerby, the street vendors and shop owners, like heck, even the style of the kanji on the advertising, I'm pretty sure that's using Chinese characters and the pirate groups are very distinctly robed in dress their uh, magic that they used is called Tao magic, and it's all the symbols of the yin and the yang. Their spellcasting chants and their hand motions all resemble something like a prayer. Like Add all of this with your more traditional cyberpunk neon, and then you have the utilitarian architecture of these bigger cities, and it's just this lovable mishmash of everything just thrown together. It's just that really, st- like I said, the kitchen sink, but there is a cohesiveness to it all. And space itself is also extremely colorful. If you've ever seen any of the movies like the Guardians of the Galaxy or any time where when the Marvel guys just go into space, space is always this colorful kaleidoscope of this, like the ships are just traveling through this uh, permanent aurora borealis. And that's the universe of Outlaw Star. It's never just black with little dots representing stars. It's always these wild reds and purples and then mixed with greens and yellows. And it's just always some kind of just, there's always something going on in the background. The background of Outlaw Star, even in space, is never passive. There's always something going on. And so it's also keeping with this space western motif of the universe being described as both this lawless frontier 
and simultaneously this vast ocean, a sea, to dive in and you know create their fortunes. Again, provided that you survive, because it is a lawless frontier. And there's the characters in Outlaw Star, particularly the main crew. Like every member is instantly recognizable by their not just their face, but their posture and dress. Outlaw Star is one of those best examples of character shorthand in the '90s before the industry transformed uh, or transitioned fully to digital cells on, di- on digital production. This is still cell uh, painted on cell. So for, for example, you have Gene Starwind, our main character. You've got the red spiky hair, the sharp eyes. He's got that lean back casual look, but he's always got his dominant hand uh, hovering near his gun. Not to mention just all the scars along his face. And then when, even when he like takes off his overcoat, you can see it just all along his uh, arms, his back, his chest. Like this is a scrapper. His yellow overcoat is both stylish and functional because you don't know where his hands are going to come from. Like sometimes when he's in a tense situation, Gene kind of puts his hands into his coat and you don't really know what he's about to pull out. And you don't know what weapons he's got concealed under there. It's also like very easy to throw off. He's got a main undersuit. It's like pure function. So it's like this black, close-fitting, full-body suit. I think it's still in two parts. But, you know, it's a close-fitting suit that's all about uh, function. And you, you, it just immediately telling, it's single glance, Gene Starwind is a fighter. He's also hot-tempered, brash, quick to action, He's although he is very street smart. And I could just keep going about all the traits of how he is just your hot-shot 90s protagonist, just aged up to in his 20s. Uh, another character, you have Twilight Suzuka being Gene's opposite, the lady assassin. She is straight black hair, kept back in a tight ponytail. She has, uh, her kimono is always exactly in place. Her posture is perfectly straight. She has a refined air about her. Every move is planned in advance. She has this sort of almost uh, slow fluidity towards her. But of course, you can tell just how the way that she, there's something about the way that she holds herself that just carries this undercurrent of violence that at any moment she can just explode into action. But even then it's going to be very sharp and precise, a targeted strike, which is very fitting for her role as an assassin type character. And I can keep going further about like Aisha Clan Clan's distinct design, like the tribal uh, callbacks. And she's got how she's got like her ears pierced and the uh, barbarian suit that she wears is both like something like an, a representing like an official uniform, but it's also something that she can clearly fight in. Jim Honking, he's this short kid, you know, again, spiky hair like Jean, but his spiky hair is like down. He's got more like the wide eyes, like a young kid, but he's always dressed up very responsibly in a suit. Uh, Melfina, she's very uh, straight haired, uh, demure, and she kind of models her way of dressing after Jean Starwin, which hints as like her admiration for that character. At the same time, there's like this quiet straightness about her. She kind of slouches at the beginning, but as the show goes on, you can see her take charge more for of her own destiny and kind of hold herself higher, hold her head higher. And not just like just the characters, I could go on forever because you have all of these crew members have the distinctive look and posture down. This is the perfect example of the silhouette role which is there's enough going on that I know exactly who everyone is based on just their outline. Not to mention the action choreography of Gene, Starwin, and crew duking it out with cyborgs, aliens, alien cyborgs. It's a ton of fun. Individuality of each character really shines through in their fighting style. You have Gene, the scrappy guy. He uses all the environment. He's usually the one ducking behind a table to take cover while he's reloading his pistol. 
and then throwing the same table at his attacker, plus whatever else is on hand. He's always throwing things around. He's always bouncing off the environment. He's always looking for the angles. And at the same time that he's looking for an angle, he's looking for the same opportunity to uh, trip, unbalance, or uh, get in a cheap shot on his opponent. Again, going back to Twilight Suzuka, she's steady, calculating, and smooth. She strikes her foes down elegantly and like with almost no wasted energy. Uh, Asian Clan Clan, she is the barbarian of the crew of the of the D&D cast, you know. Whatever gets in her way gets removed immediately. Asia Clan Clan is Hulk smash. Uh, Jim and Melfina basically stay out of the fight. They're not, they're non-combatants for the most part. But Jim uh, backs up Gene with a lot of analysis. Like, so you got to hit the cyborg guy in this specific spot to turn to shut him down. Uh, space combat is equally entertaining. The ships are all incredibly maneuverable. Uh, you've got trading missiles and machine gun broadsides. You've got the lovely, uh, what do you call it, like the missile carnival of just these things dancing through space and the dynamic camera angles. And again, the outlaw star with one of its grappler arms holding out a machine gun. You've got it darting all over the place. And Gene Starwin is at the controls of this machine gun shooting down missiles before they hit the ship. Uh, These ships just have all kinds of assorted weaponry and just going to town on each other. Like they dart and dash across the screen, clashing together. Like there's, you have this whole vastness of space between them yet you have both sides deciding that, no, this needs to be intimate, this needs to be bloody, and I'm not just going to take you down, I'm going to physically dismantle you. And every move of this is just animated in glorious detail. All of this, of course, is backed by an absolutely stellar soundtrack, courtesy of Ko Otani, who is our main uh, composer and soundtrack score. Outlaw Star is graced by this sweeping orchestral score that sometimes can hang with the best of all the other space opera soundtracks out there, while also mixing in electric guitar and drum set. When it wants to go full rock and roll, it goes full rock and roll. Ko Otani, of course, has uh, several series under his belt before going into Outlaw Star. His debut was actually for the anime adaptation of Senti Hunter. Then he moved on to uh, the racing series, uh, Shin Seiki GPX Cyber Formula. And, of course, if you like the music of Gundam Wing, you can thank this man. He did the music for Gundam Wing, and then he went straight from that into Outlaw Star. So there's a little bit of musical uh, cues that I picked up, but Outlaw Star is still very much its own identity. Uh, after Outlaw Star, he's worked on Shakugan no Shana. He was the composer on uh, Gunslinger Girl, uh, Haibane Renmei. It's more of like a subdued soundtrack. And something else that's not subdued, of course, is the football series Ice Shield 21. And in getting back to subdued a little bit, he's also the composer for the video game Shadow of the Colossus. So you can thank Ko Otani for that just amazing soundtrack, as well as everything else. The opening credits theme for Outlaw Star is Through the Night. Lyrics and vocals by Masahiko Arimatsu. And his only other music credit that I could find was Idol Densensu Eriko, which is a series from 1989. Uh, After Outlaw Star, he doesn't really have any further anime credits, but he did continue performing until about 2001. So there really wasn't much that I could find him about him. But I did find a little bit more... Uh, about his second uh, partner that he uh, composed with, because the Through the Night was composed and arranged by Kazuhiro Hara. So these two men had formed this group called Wild Style until about 1998, when uh, Masahiko Arimatsu uh, left to form another group. So Through the Night is, I believe, credited to Wild Style as the band. But Kazuhiro Hara has several credits for arranging uh, anime theme songs. We have Grip, 
which is the fourth opening for Inuyasha. You've got the various insert songs for Bubblegum Crisis, Tokyo 2040, uh, You're Under Arrest. And most recently, he uh, composed and arranged for Zombieland Saga Revenge. The closing credits theme song were both, there are two of them, both sung by the lovely Akino Arai, and they are Hiro no Suki, which is Daytime Moon, and Suki no Ie, uh, House of the Moon. One of her best-known projects is her involvement with Macross Plus. Uh, That song is Voices. She's also had involvement with several anime, including uh, Record of Lotus War, Chobits, and Spice and Wolf Season 2, and I didn't know this, but she's the one who sings uh, Chisei's Lullaby from the Ancient Magus Bride. So that's a nice little uh, surprise for me. And I will have to say, as far as the... um, what am I going to say? As far as the first ending song, Daytime Moon, there is a version of Daytime Moon, which is sung by Melfina uh, multiple times through the show. So both the Japanese and English voice actresses got to sing that song, and both renditions are, are really good. So the first ending credits theme was arranged by Akino-san as well, so she arranged and did the vocals and the lyrics and all that stuff. But the second song, House of the Moon, was arranged by Hisaki Hogari, who has worked with Akino Arai on a fair number of songs. So those uh, series that I mentioned earlier, he's worked with her on those. And it's an interesting comparison between the opening and ending credits as well for Outlaw Star, because not only are these two very different songs, you also have the animations being just very different as well, because the opening animation through the night is obviously like fast, frenetic, very tightly cut. It's some of the best animation in the... Well, I'm not going to say it's some of the best animation in the show, but it's like... In terms of getting you hyped and getting you in there, it's like really good. It's one of the highlights of Outlaw Star. However, the ending credits, they aren't animated. These are just individual illustrations. Uh, Both songs are, of course, very melancholic. The illustrations have this very storybook and kind of like ephemeral side to them. It's something that feels like familiar and also alien. Like something always feels off about these illustrations. And it's pretty much always of a girl in space. And... For those of you who have seen this show, you know what I'm talking about with like these illustrations are like just odd, but they also, they're not off-putting per se, it's just they're odd. They're like very interesting because you have these illustrations that like really stick in the mind and then you combine uh, Akino's voice to create this really otherworldly feeling and it's a feeling completely different from Outlaw Star's usual like loud, colorful, otherworldly aesthetic and if you've ever thought about the person who created these images for the ending credits, let me introduce you to Hikaru Tanaka. This is a book and magazine illustrator, and as far as the development of Outlaw Star, he was completely out of the loop. The basic rub is you have Sakai Mitsuyasu, who is a screenwriter and also credited as the science fiction planner for Outlaw Star. Basically, uh, Sakai-san reached out to Tanaka-san and asked him to illustrate an idea for a new anime series. Uh, So Tanaka agreed, and he presented his portfolio to uh, the series director, uh, Mitsuru Hongo, as well as the series producer. And as he was told, they were looking for something outside of ordinary anime illustrations. So according to... Tanaka-san, he produced this paintings for the first ending, Daytime Moon, while listening to uh, Akino-san sing over and over again. It's like he had this song on loop, and this is something that it took him two weeks to make. And so imagine listening to this same song for just two weeks straight. 
And I think that's how you get this interesting blend that you see now. It's why these illustrations just match her voice so well. And so as far as Hikaru Tanaka's involvement with Outlaw Star, these illustrations are his entire contribution to Outlaw Star. And I don't think there was any way he could have known just how impactful his images were to be on this anime. So let's get into our next portion, which I'm calling going to call uh, All About the Actors. And first, I'm going to talk about a little bit of the English adaptation. So a little bit out of order, but as I typically talk about both the Japanese and English actors, I want to use this segment to uh, get in front of the English adaptation and talk about uh, who is in charge of translating and scripting this series. So first off, uh, Outlaw Star was licensed by Bandai Entertainment. And for the English version, Outlaw Star was translated and co-produced by ZRO Limit Productions. Uh, the company Animes was also in charge of dubbing. So we have the voice direction by Wendy Lee. And she started her career with Streamline Pictures and Pioneer Media. So she started very early on. So she's worked on the dubs of Nadia, The Secret of Blue Water, uh, Love Hina, Akira, and Dragon Ball. She also has a long career as a voice actress on several major projects. This being uh, Wendy Lee is the voice of Faye Valentine in Cowboy Bebop. She's also the voice of Conan and Ogawa from Detective Conan Projects in the 2023 series. She was also the voice of Nadia in the streamlined dub of uh, Nadia, Secret of Blue Water. And she also did some voice work for Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. So they were the dub voice of Scorpina. There's also, she's also been the ADR and voice direction on several series. Again, Bleach. Love Hina. She was the voice director for Cyberpunk Edge Runners, the English version of that. Uh, VV Floride Eyes song. So she's still working. And the translation and subtitling for Outlaw Star came courtesy of David Fleming. He's done several projects, but I'll I have him listed as the translator and subtitles for Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. That's the full series. Also the video games that came to the U.S. He is also involved with the translation of the Mobile Suit Gundam franchise, starting with 0080 War in the Pocket up until uh, Advent of the Red Comet in 2019. And one fun aspect of looking up the English actors before I jump into like all the voice cast and everyone is all the English actors use a damn alias. So if a few of these English actor names, for those of you who are very familiar, who might be very familiar with the English cast, if I might be using a different name, Trust me, it's the same person. It's just, I double-checked, but I tried to list the English actors as they are named in the credits for Outlaw Star. But some of their outside credits may have been under a different alias. Because for some of these guys, they basically did Outlaw Star under this one alias and maybe like a side character in two other projects. And then they have a slew of other roles over here. So I didn't want to just make it seem like they barely did any work in the animation industry at all. Let's start with our main character, of course, Gene Starwind. In Japanese, he's voiced by Shigeru Shibuya. And from what I can see, Gene Starwind is his biggest role. He's been involved with a lot of series and smaller roles, so he's been involved with Samurai Champloo. He was in an episode of Revolutionary Girl Utena. He was also uh, Shingo Sato from a 2001 soccer series, Offside. He's also the main character Jun Kurosu from Persona 2, Innocent Sin, and Eternal Punishment video games. In English, Gene Starwind is voiced by Robert Wicks, I believe is under Robert or Bob Buckles. I probably butchered that last name. He is the owner of Spliced Bread Productions, and you may have heard me mention them in our Outlaw... In, <laughs> you may have heard me mention them earlier in our Violet Evergarden episode. Uh, that's episode six. 
So he's done dubbing and ADR on all of the Violet Evergarden series for Netflix, plus several other Netflix uh, anime originals. He, so he worked on Knights of Sidonia, High Score Girl, uh, Doro Hidoro, Devilman Crybaby. So that was like Splice Bread Productions. He's also been the voice director on a couple of video games. So you have Baten Kaitos, uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake. He was also on Crisis Core, Final Fantasy Type O. He's also the voiceover director for the English dub of Final Fantasy VII Advent Children, that, that movie. As he was also the voice of Ryu from the anime's dub of Akira, Beck Gold from The Big O, and Pazu from Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. So a couple of other voice roles that he's done, aside from just being an ADR director. Coming up next, we have Jim Hawking, the plucky sidekick character for Gene Starwin, and really the main kid that keeps them in business, if I'm being honest. This kid is an MVP of the crew. In Japanese, he is voiced by the lovely Rika Matsumoto. She's had a lot of roles uh, voicing young boys, namely this one minor character in a niche franchise. I'm talking Satoshi from Pokemon. Yes, this is the original Japanese actress for Ash Ketchum. She's also done several theme song performances for the Pokemon animated series, and she's been there from the beginning, the opening credits for the original series plus the uh, fifth ending credits theme, I believe. She's also one of the original uh, members of the popular vocal group Jam Project. So they did the first ending credits to Yu-Gi-Oh! GX. They've been involved with the Card Fight Vanguard series. I would think their most recognizable and successful song by Country Mile is The Hero, which is the opening credits to One Punch Man. But I don't think she was part of Jam Project at that point, but it's, it is that same group. Ask me to talk about covering Jam Project without mentioning One Punch Man. I mean, come on. Jim Hawking in English is voiced by Ian Hawk or Brian Sedal. Uh, she's also voiced Kido from Zatch Bell, uh, Kunikida from Melancholy of Haruhi Suzumiya, and then we have a couple of Digimon, uh, Koromon, Kalumon, as well as a character Tomihimi. So this is uh, Digimon Frontiers, Digimon Data Squad, and also Tamers. So she's got a lot of credits under her belt. Malfina, our lovely uh, android character and the heart of the ship, Outlaw Star. In Japanese, she is voiced by Ayako Kawasumi, who debuted in her first major roles in this same year, in 1998. So her first role was this side character, uh, Yuki Azuma, I believe, in the baseball series Princess Nine. And as far as the Anime News Network Encyclopedia says, um, Malfina is Ayako's first debut role as like a major character while another one uh cites like the anime database cites uh mogi natsuki from the racing series initial d who's a side character and a occasional love interest to the main characters i'm kind of giving it to anime news network encyclopedia since melfina is kind of a bigger role but the point is ayako's career got off to a pretty great start in 1998 shortly after her uh, professional debut in 1996 so Melfina was a pretty big uh, role for her. She's also voiced uh, Mika Iwakura, who's the sister to our main character Lane Iwakura from uh, science fiction series uh, Serial Experiments Lane. I really like that show. She's also, of course, done several music uh, performances in AD Police, uh, Maha Romantic, uh, also Queen's Blade, and then Squid Girl. And another uh, role that she might is known for, obviously uh, a lot more mainstream, she's the voice of Saber from the Fate series, like Fate Stay Night. So Saber is a very major character in that show. In English, Melfina is voiced by the lovely Emily Brown. She's had a lot of side roles in episodes of Trigun and Cowboy Bebop, 
Uh, she's voiced uh, Anna Sahalin, I think, in Mobile Suit Gundam 08 MS Team. She's also voiced uh, Annie LaBelle from Robotech under the name uh, Mary Cobb, I think. And a really cool credit I found for Emily Brown is she's also the creator and producer of a children's video series, uh, Signing Time, also uh, Rachel and the Tree Schoolers. So these are videos that teach uh, children how to uh, learn sign language. Our next character is uh, the assassin Twilight Suzuka. In Japanese, she's voiced by Sayuri, uh, just Sayuri, who also voices uh, Vera Ronstadt in The Big O. She's also uh, Lady Un from Mobile Suit Gundam Wing. Another fun deal, detail about the uh, Japanese dub, she was the voice of Maud Flanders, as well as Ichi from the Japanese dub of The Simpsons. And for Twilight Suzuka, we have Wendy Lee, who I covered earlier is one of the is the is the voice director, and for Twilight Suzuka, you can very easily tell that this is very close to her Faye Valentine voice. So if you like that voice, Twilight Suzuka in English is going to be right up your alley. Getting on to the Cat Girl Aisha Clan Clan in Japanese, she is voiced by Yuko Miyamura, who's also the voice of Asuka Langley Soryu from Neon Genesis Evangelion. She's also the singer for the ending credits rendition of the popular song, Fly Me to the Moon, Let Me Play Amongst the Stars. So that's her. In English, Aisha Klein Klan is voiced by Lenore Zahn, who's based out of Canada, and she's had a very, very interesting career. Uh, in terms of voice acting, her main role in uh, that she might be well known is uh, Rogue from 1992's X Men series. She's also the voice of Crowley Hamon from the 2001 English dub of the 1971 Mobile Suit Gundam series. But since 2008, she's been involved in politics and has had several uh, positions over the years, including as a member of parliament, I believe. So a lot of involvement in Canadian politics. So let's get into the supporting cast, or what I'm going to call the supporting cast of Outlaw Stars. There's not too many characters I'm going to go over, but of course I have to talk about Hot Ice Hilda the outlaw on the run from the uh, pirate clan, uh, specifically the K-Pirate clan, as she's also taken out one of their leaders, who and she lost an eye and an arm in the process. She's also the person who originally stole the XGP ship and Melfina from the pirates. So naturally, she's being chased by the pirates, and she meets Gene Starwind and Jim Hawking under the alias of Rachel Sweet, and hires them to be her bodyguard while she tries to repair her ship and herself. And Hilda actually tries to kill Jean shortly after her cover is blown by the pirates. However, Jean manages to overpower. And so at gunpoint, uh, Hilda reveals the existence of Melfina to the boys, as well as her location. And so the four of them end up uh, recovering the XGP together as a team. However, they are tracked because the pirates place a Tau magic tracking spell on Hilda's ship leading them right to the hidden asteroid containing the XGP uh, special starship. So the pirates also hired these Delta outlaws, the McDougal brothers, who end up destroying Hilda's ship during the recovery process of the XGP. So we have what essentially ends up being this three-way battle between Jean's crew, the Cake pirates, and the McDougal brothers. Hilda takes on the uh, pirate's Talmaster and ends up sacrificing herself in the process so Jean, Jim, and Malfina can escape, but she also takes down the Tau Master with her. And so even beyond her death, Hilda reappears a couple of times in the show, mainly as like a vision to Jean Starwin uh, when he's pa- facing particular moments of crisis. 
uh, like when Gene believes he's going to die or in, in some instances where Gene is dying. And it's in these kind of moments where it was kind of hinted at what their relationship was, but it's really these visions that kind of speak to a deeper connection between Gene and Hilda beyond just their brief encounter of a few days and underneath some bed sheets. Uh, in Japanese, she is voiced by Toshika Fujita, and she's been part of the anime industry basically since the age of eight. So like since 1958, she got her start on uh, radio, uh, some television acting, uh, some comedy and seeing, singing. And speaking of singing, if you look up the opening credits to 1969's Dororo, this is her singing the opening credits. She's also done a lot of other Toei animation work, such as Puss in Boots movie, also in 1969. And she was a singer on uh, the 2000s Digimon Adventure se- series. She's also uh, the voice of Mamiya from Fist of the North Star, as well as Makia from Wicked City. Again, she's been part of the industry, just the entertainment industry since 1958, and easily part of the anime industry since practically the beginning in the 60s. So she brings a really seasoned performance to Hilda at this point. She's been in her careers as an entertainer has been spanning 40 years up until going to Hilda. She has, she has a very seasoned voice. And in English, we have Mary Elizabeth McGuinn or uh, Mary uh, Melissa Williamson, I believe is, is her role. You'll recognize her probably as Julia from Cowboy Bebop. Uh, she also voices Naoto Shiragani, one of the characters in Persona 4, but this is Persona 4, the animation. I best know her as Matoko Kusanagi from Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. She was also the ADR director on that show next to Kevin Seymour. So if we're talking her performance of Hilda, this is straight up Motoko Kusanagi from Ghost in the Shell. She is also the ADR director for Naruto and Naruto Shippuden, and also pretty much all the Naruto video games as well. Uh, just one more series. She was also the ADR director for the English dub of Wolf's Reign. So again, Hilda is basically the character who starts the plot of this entire show. You can immediately tell that she's a seasoned veteran, both by her vocal performances and just the way that she carries herself and the fact that, you know, she's a character with the eye patch and she's got a cyborg arm. She's a really cool character. You can tell she's been through the ringer. And she always sounds like in charge and confident, even when we, the audience can tell like she's fake, that she's faking it. And I really like this character. Hilda, like a character like Hilda could just carry a show all on her own. And like a lot of characters in this show, her backstory is a complete mystery. You can glean a few details, however, through what some other characters say about her, but it's practically up to our interpretation or like really not our interpretation, like our imagination. One of the characters who knows Hilda rather well, as he's her chief mechanic, is the character Swanzo. So this is a chief mechanic operating out of the, the base Blue Heaven, kind of like an outlaw hangout. And so he's a guy who mainly worked with Hilda, but also gives uh, Gene Starwin and the crew a break because of their association with Hilda. So he's one of our alien races uh, known as a Corbinite, and he's pretty much allied with humanity. He looks like this bipedal green frog but is mostly seen in this special round green suit because Corbinites cannot survive in a human or oxygen-rich environment. So being a frogman, his voice is, of course, very froggy. In Japanese, he's voiced by uh, the legendary Takeshi Ono. We're talking Sanada from Space Battleship Yamato, also well-known for his roles as King Piccolo and Kami in original Dragon Ball series. He's been around a long time. In English, Doug, uh, Doug Stone voices Swanzo, 
and Doug Stone is also the voice for Psycho Mantis in the Metal Gear Solid games. We have our next character, Fred Lau. Uh, the, this is our main financier and the supplier of weapons for the crew of the Outlaw Star. And he has a very overt crush on Gene Starwind. Uh, Fred Lau is surprisingly devious when it comes to business, unless, of course, it's concerning Gene. He basically just, like, Gene Starwind issues more IO, IOUs to this guy than anyone else in the series. And, like, honestly, without this guy around, the Outlaw Star crew would never get anything done because the crew was always, like, borderline dead broke. Fred Lau is our shadow MVP for the show next to Jim Hawking. So real quickly, in Japanese, he is voiced by Toshihiko Seki. This is Legato Blue Summers from Trigun. Also, uh, Genjo Sanzo from Sayuki. Uh, in English, Fred Lau is voiced by Ethan Murray, who's uh, the ADR director for dubs of uh, 86, uh, both seasons, uh, amongst a couple of others. So 86 is a really uh, tightly written show. I like the English dub on that one, so I'm going to give him the ADR director uh, shout out for Ethan Murray. And finally, we have Gilliam 2, who is the snarky AI navigator and basically fix-it-all, do-it-all for the ship of the Outlaw Star. So he's the one, he, like the dry, matter-of-fact version, like your uh, C-3PO, or actually, really his delivery reminds me more like Kit from Knight Rider. Uh, just always telling the crew just dryly how low their odds of success are, how horrible their deaths will be, and how incompetent Gene Starwind is, and how all these low stakes are probably going to be Gene Starwin getting them killed. Gilliam, however, gets along swimmingly with both Jim Hawking, Melfina, and Twilight Suzuka. And Gilliam has moments where he seems to know not to piss off Aisha Clan Clan. So any kind of frustrations that he has, uh, Gilliam, any kind of personality that he has, is just to uh, tell Gene Starwin he sucks. (laughs) It's great. And then you have Gene Starwin sniping back at him and Jim Hawking going, now, now, he means well. So all that, it's a really fun dynamic that I think Gilliam is, again, like kind of a unsung hero of the crew dynamic. In Japanese, he's voiced by Takaya Hashi, who's also the voice of Toki from Fist of the North Star. Uh, most recently, you can hear him as Donovan Desmond from Spy Family. In English, he's voiced by G. Gordon Bear, uh, who voices Skybite and Transformers. Sagat in Street Fighter 2, the animated movie. Last, but certainly not least, we have the narrator. Not so much a character in the show, but he may as well be. Because the narrator introduces the topic of each episode, as well as the subjects involved. So anywhere from like 30 to 45 seconds, maybe about a minute. Uh, much of the author's world-building notes from the manga are the job of the narrator to open up the show. And with the narrator, you also have pictures that fill in more details of the world such as uh, a young Hilda, like pre-losing her eye and her arm, as when he's talking about outlaws, you get like an idea of some of her younger days. And another one of uh, Gene Starwin's father. Again, another character whose past we know like literally nothing about. But through one of these pictures and the accompanying narration, Gene's dad possibly could have been some kind of space adventurer, maybe even an outlaw. And maybe even uh, ran in with uh, Hilda or had an encounter with Hot Eyes Hilda back in the day when she was getting her start. And Takaya Hashi, on top of voicing Gilliam, is our narrator for the uh, Japanese dub of Outlaw Star. But if you're listening to the English dub of Outlaw Star, you will probably recognize this voice immediately because this is, of course, none other than John Billingsley, who is Jet Black from Cowboy Bebop. And this is basically his talking voice. 
He's also the voice of Barrett Wallace from Final Fantasy VII Advent Children, the movie. Very slick, smooth, deep delivery. That man's got a voice on him. Let's get into the antagonist of Outlaw Star. First off, we have the assassin leader uh, Hanzo from the K-Pirate Guild. He is said to be the leader of the 108 Stars, which is like this upper echelon of the K-Pirate Guild. And he was also this key player in building the Outlaw Star spaceship. Because a key thing about the Outlaw Star is... This is a super advanced ship made to specifically find and reach, like make it to the, the galactic ley line and survive the journey. There's so, apparently some big thing protecting the galactic ley line. Again, no one knows where it is, but they know like the journey is fraught with danger. So the, the outlaw star is specifically built to find this great treasure. And it was this secret, it was a secret project both between the space forces and the pirate guild. So the whole project was very hush-hush. It'd be a huge scandal if this thing ever got out. So Hazanko is one of the key players who was in charge of building the ship, as well as, who knows, a lot of the secrets behind Melfina's origins. So in Japanese, he's voiced by the veteran Seizo Kato. This is our voice of Megatron, Galvatron, and the Devastator from the original Transformers series. He's also had one outing as Inspector Zenigata from Lucan, Lupin III, the Fuma Conspiracy. And really looking through this guy's catalog, he's had a lot of roles as villains and monsters. He brings a lot of much-needed gravitas to this character. So similarly, we have uh, English dub Abe Lassiter, who's been involved with voiceover projects since the 80s. We're talking part of the Saban Entertainment from 1984 to 2000. So he was involved with the dubs of Great Teacher Onizuka, Samurai Champloo, and Robotech, to name a couple of things. And Hazanko is introduced as this big threatening character, and we've got like seven assassins. Like these, not just any regular pirate assassins. These are like super assassins. And after the introductory arc of, we had basically like this one crew of the K-Pirate Guild uh, going after Gene Starwin and Hilda, and then ultimately being thwarted by both Hilda and the McDougal brothers, these guys are supposed to be like our next big bad guys. And so this whole attitude of the K-Pirates and the Assassins, they're introduced and then almost immediately dropped and irrelevant to the plot. I mean, it's it's one of the, my frustrations with Outlaw Star and that the K-Pirates are introduced as this big threat that can only be taken down through like magical means. So Gene has this early thing where he's using all these conventional weapons, like his pistol doesn't work. He fires a freaking bazooka at these guys. It doesn't work. But he has this magical gun called a caster gun, which basically uses these specialized cartridges. And each of these cartridges have a are, are numbered, and each number represents a particular spell. So part of the magic system of Outlaw Star is very light and just in the air as it is. It's not really, I would, it's, I'm not going to call it a magic system, just part of the magical means of Outlaw Star is the caster gun is like one of the only weapons that can really go toe-to-toe with these uh, Tau magic casters, because otherwise they are just literally bulletproof. And so like these are these big threatening guys, and they don't really do anything for a lot of the stuff. Like after the introductory deal, the K-Pirates themselves as a group kind of go away. So it's, it's really frustrating to see like this whole threat of the K-Pirates that just went away very quickly. Like they had this introductory deal where they're very threatening, and then it's the crew kind of getting their bearings. They try to make some money through this space race. And after that, 
I'm wondering, like, okay, we'll see. Shortly after the space race, you have Hazanko and the assassins introduced, and then it's just kind of, they're just kind of there. I mean, episode 15 was as threatening as these guys ever were before the series finale. And it was this expectation of, I'm only the first guy. There, Everybody else after me is stronger and more powerful and more scary, you know. But all of this never materialized until like the very end. We even had this entire narration segment to introduce each assassin by name and reputation. And again, literally two episodes later, I forgot about them immediately because the show forgets about them. Like there's even one assassin who's just randomly in this side episode all about women's wrestling. Yeah, All-Star just takes these tangents. And this assassin wasn't even looking for Jean Starwin. She was just taking part in this wrestling episode because that was her thing. She's the she's the muscle of the assassin group and she's just having fun in the women's wrestling league. And then Jean Starwin just shows up and she goes, man, that was lucky. But even then, this one was taken out by Asia Clan Clan off screen. Another one, we have episode 23 is a Hot Springs episode. But at least we get they got this one guy lying in wait. However, the tone of episode 23 is just so goofy and this assassin is like so incompetent. It's literally like Looney Tune physics going on in this episode. Just very strange. And after that, I honestly stopped caring about the assassins just entirely. And we even Hazanko, like their big threatening leader, he's only like he's introduced and then we only see him one more time before the series conclusion. And it's him basically shaking his fist going, damn you, Gene Starwind. Like they had all these cool storylines set up and then you have these, these assassins introduced as like this big thing. And they don't really materialize until the very series finale, the episodes 24 through 26. So you have this really goofy Hot Springs episode in 23. And then 24 through 26 is like, okay, this is serious time. We're going in guns blazing. Now all the assassins are suddenly cool again and they're super threatening and they're just coming at them all at once. And there's still four of them left. It's it's a very messy way to handle the villains. Now, who I think are the actual villains of this show and the actual threats of this show are, of course, the outlaws, uh, the McDougal brothers. We have Ron and Harry. So we first have Ron McDougal, who's the older of the two brothers and basically the brain of their operations. These guys are vicious and calculating and extremely well-connected within the criminal underworld. They take jobs from basically anyone. So they work with the pirates, and then the next moment, they may get a call and can just turn around and start shooting up the pirates because they just got paid by the pirates for their job. That contract's over. Someone else wants the pirates dead. Time to work on that second contract. They don't care, and they're good enough to get away with it. So in Japanese, Ron McDougal is voiced by Kazuhiro Nakata. This is, uh, he voices a character named Bear from the Doc Hack series, uh, Fei Wong Reed from Subasa Reservoir Chronicles. And to kind of give you a range of this guy, this, he's got a really smooth operating voice. Like Kazuhiro Nakata is both provided the voice for Agent Smith from the Japanese dubs of The Matrix, but he's also provided the voice for Marvin the Martian in the Japanese dubs of Looney Tunes, including Space Jam. Uh, in English, we have uh, Jack Emmett voicing Ron McDougal, uh, but his birth name, I believe, is John Snyder. His most recognizable role to me, personally, is Kazundo Goda, the main antagonist from Season 2 of Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. And his role as Kazundo Goda in Standalone Complex is literally his performance in Outlaw Star. Or actually, actually, actually I should say Outlaw Star came first, so his performance as Ron McDougal is his performance as Kazundo Goda. Really just 
sinister, chilling voice. And the younger brother, Harry McDougal, he's the younger brother in the hothead. He's got this air of just barely keeping his sadism under check. Like, this guy is just barely holding it together. And at any moment, he just explodes. And Harry McDougal has a particular interest in uh, seducing Melfina, like, own Melfina. Like, this guy is, woof. In, in Japanese, he's voiced by Sutomo Kashiwakura, who's also the voice of young Gene Starwin during uh, particular flashbacks of Outlaw Star. He's also the voice of uh, Safiru from Sailor Moon R. He's also the dubbing director of Samurai Shampoo, and he's assisted on multiple other projects like uh, Initial D, the movie Metropolis, and Hajime no Ippo. In English, Harry McDougal is voiced by Steve Cannon, who you might know as Neji Hyuga from Naruto and Naruto Shippuden, plus all the video games. He is the voice of Griffith from the most recent uh, series of Berserk. Uh, that's the 2016 and 2017 series. And of course, for me, he is the definitive uh, dub voice for Makinouchi Ippo from the legendary boxing series Hajime no Ippo. In fact, I would call his performance of Harry McDougal very close to his performances as Ippo, only if Ippo, this kid was an absolute psycho. And so the McDougal brothers are the villains that stick in my mind when I remember Outlaw Star. And what I like is not only were they introduced as threatening, they stayed threatening and they were consistently through the series. You didn't always have to have the villains there showing up in every episode, but there was always some way that they would show up. They were always present. And he had this air of like they were always keeping tabs on the Outlaw Star's crew. They were just seemed to always show up at the exact wrong time for the crew. So these guys are the ones who I believe are like the true villains of Outlaw Star. And surprisingly, the big pirate guilds being the secondary villains. It's not what I would immediately expect. But also surprisingly, they are rather relatable near the end of the series. It's not that I feel sorry for these guys, but I wasn't expecting to I kind of go all for them near the end because obviously they're very vicious killers, but the dynamic between these two brothers is they deeply care for each other. Harry and Ron put each other, like put their brother first. And it's a sense of like these two brothers can only trust each other. They only have each other in the entire universe. And even with Harry's obsession with Melfina, as it's still a very creepy thing through the show, as he's, again, he's he's a guy who just, he, if he ever got a hold of Melfina, he would be the one, like, he would just use her, abuse her, and then in the end, he would break her. There's no way that this guy was going to treat Melfina right. And there are multiple instances through the show where she, I don't know why, but it's, they also, like, share a very interesting connection with each other. So he does have an angle on her, but, it's a very tenuous one at that. But even so, I think that they took an interesting direction, at least at the end of the show, with Harry McDougal and Melfina, and then just the McDougal brothers' relationship with the crew of the Outlaw Star. So next up, I want to get into the release and reception of the series, both in Japan and in the United States. So, Outlaw Star premiered in Japan on TV Tokyo from January 1998, and concluded in June 1998. This is 26 episodes total. The series was a late-night broadcast, and so it didn't exactly set the world on fire in terms of ratings. In fact, ratings were rather low to average. A lot of folks in Japan just saw it and then moved on. And 1999, Sunrise also produced the spin-off series Angel Links, which, as stated earlier, takes place in the same universe, but they don't really share any story continuity with Outlaw Star. 
Shortly after the conclusion of the series, we had Takihiko Ito and his Morningstar studio. They drafted a proposed sequel to Outlaw Star, which is it would have been a single-episode OVA special titled Outlaw Star 2, Sword of the Wind. Uh, the basic premise, and you can find this on, there's an official website for this, and so the entire premise that they had was basically set three years after the main show, uh, the adventure has continued. Gene Starwind and his new starship, the Sword of the Wind. Uh, because in classic Gene fashion, he's pissed off the wrong person, and he out- lost the Outlaw Star spaceship due to a bad debt, and is in the process of recovering the ship. But of course, we need to have Gene get a cool ship, so he's got the Sword of the Wind. This uh, ensuing debt process and just his lackadaisical, you know, it's Gene Starwind. He, d- he never really has a plan for anything. So in the intervening three years, he's also had a falling out with Jim Hawking. And so the story would begin with the mysterious explosion of a ship carrying Fred Lowell and the crew basically uh, banding back together and trying to figure out who is responsible or what's responsible. However, this is about as far as that proposal has ever gotten because due due to the lack of popularity of the main series in Japan, plus the busy schedule of uh, Mitsuru Hongo, no production date was ever set and later in 2001, Ito-san commented that his team only had bare bones, like basic plans for the sequel series, and that maybe, just maybe, they could one day continue the story of Outlaw Star via the manga series, which it's been 25 years, and since then there have been no real projects directly related to Outlaw Star. So let's talk next about the North American distribution, which is another story just full of twists and turns. And so to start things off, I want to include an extra treat from y'all, a blast from the past, so to speak. Time to roll the dice. Don't let them escape after them. Lay the cards on the table and take a shot at destiny. Outlaw Star. Outlaw Star premiered on the Toonami Evening Block from January 15th, 2001 through February 16th, 2001, albeit heavily edited. We're talking about uh, most of the nudity in the show was covered up with clothing, particularly episode 23, the Hot Springs episode. This was just not aired at all. Uh, Fred Lau had a lot of editing as well, because Fred is an openly gay character, and he was considerably toned down for this release. And the creative director of Toonami, Sean Atkins, had something to say about this. Because according to him, the decisions to edit down Fred Lowe were actually made by Cartoon Network. Although there was no specific editing policy in regarding to gay characters, there was this general thing of overt sexuality or implied sexuality of any kind are not allowed. And that was Cartoon Network's adage in their editing of Outlaw Star. However, Cartoon Network let uh, plenty of the cussing slide through in order to preserve the integrity of the story. Nowadays, of course, we have the full series available in its original unedited form. But even this journey to uh, its current form has its own shares of twists and turns and drama, at least for North America, because in Japan, this is pretty straightforward. However, for North America, I'm going to try and keep this quick and simple. So let's talk about corporations. Oh boy. First off, we have Bandai Entertainment, which is a subsidiary of Bandai America Incorporated, which is, of course, the North American anime licensing and distribution arm of the Japanese toy company Bandai Code Limited. Not confusing at all. Uh, the titles that this company distributed, so we're talking about Bandai Entertainment, 
were, of course, Bandai-funded anime, but Bandai Entertainment also released uh, several titles that their parent company was not involved with at all. And then, conversely, you have Bandai Visual USA, which is another DVD production branch of the company. But I believe this one was more involved with uh, producing limited editions of like Bandai Visual properties. And so these are like your marked up, you know, prestige releases. So here's the basic rub. We have this massive corporation, Bandai Company Limited, with a ton of holdings that include anime production, licensing, distribution. And honestly, there's our, the, the basic rub was there are like several, several stories of how just clunky and mishandled uh, some U.S. releases were under Bandai Entertainment and the visual. So again, these were on the same company, but they were two separate parts of a company. So like they were offering two separate products. Particularly, you have the infamous uh, release of Saint Seiya just absolutely being bungled. Plus uh, the difficulty of Gundam breaking out in the United States as well. A lot of the early instances of Gundam kind of flopping in the U.S. are courtesy of just how Bandai decided to release that series. But I'm not going to really go into those stories because that's an entire iceberg, rabbit hole, whatever you want to call it in itself. And I'm just trying to keep this specifically to Outlaw Star. So in 2008, here's here's the kicker. So in 2008, Bandai Namco Holdings announced the merger of both entertainment and visual with the assets of Bandai Visual USA to be liquidated by September of 2008. But in November 23rd, 2011, Bandai Entertainment announced the closure of its online store as of December 29th. And then we had shortly after that, January 23rd of 2012, the announcement that Bandai Entertainment would stop releasing new Blu-rays, DVDs, and manga. This also came with the announcement of they were just canceling multiple releases and of regular shows and newer shows. On August 31st of 2012, no more products to retailers. And Bandai was basically trying to shut down their publishing and distribution business by March 1st of 2013. So this closure, of course, left several series in limbo for multiple years, including Outlaw Star, which the last Region 1 DVD release of the show, which the Region 1 is the United States, the last DVD Region 1 release was way back in 2004. Anime Limited uh, picked up the series again for a 2013 release in the UK, but that is a Region 2 DVD. And so for North America, we had no news until Otakon 2013 in Baltimore, Maryland, when Funimation and Sunrise announced the license rescue of several series formerly held by Bandai Entertainment. So of course, Sunrise is, a again, a subsidiary. This is Bandai Namco Filmworks, so Sunrise is somewhere in that subsidiary chain of Bandai Namco Entertainment. Obviously, the headliner of this group was Cowboy Bebop, but this is also the same announcement of Code Geass, Lelouch of the Rebellion, uh, the revision of Escaflone and its movie, Angel Links, uh, Crest of the Stars and its sequels, a couple of other ones. So of this group announced in 2013, the first release was, of course, Cowboy Bebop. Starting in 2014, the first time Cowboy Bebop had been available on Blu-ray. And Code Geass uh, followed in 2016, and everything else kind of trickled down. So for a lot of these shows, this was the first time that they were available for Blu-ray. Japan, however, got the Outlaw Star on Blu-ray uh, in October of 2014, and they got a bunch of features, including staff commentary. They had an art gallery board. Uh, they also had book breaks of Gene and Melfina, like inside the DVD release, uh, plus a couple of various songs. So they kind of got the premiere one. And on March 2017... 
Funimation finally announced that Outlaw Star will be released in North America, both in standard and collection editions, on June 13th, 2017. So the original, the standard and collection editions came in a DVD Blu-ray combo package, as Funimation was wont to do at the time. The collector's edition came in this uh, metallic art box designed after the XTP spacecraft, plus a 100-page art book. Outlaw Star also returned to Cartoon Network as part of the uh, Adult Swim uh, and the Toonami block. So starting in August 2017 and concluding in March of 2018, this late night rerun was aired with fewer edits and also included the U.S. premiere of episode 23. The I own Outlaw Star on Blu-ray, but my set is actually from Funimation's uh, 2018 release as part of their classics line. So this is Blu-ray only, and it has just only a couple of extra features, but it has the basics. You got your textless opening and closing songs. You have some commercials. Uh, including the minute and a half pilot video for Outlaw Star. So speaking of that Blu-ray and like watching the show, you can watch Outlaw Star on Hulu and Funimation streaming sites. You can also, of course, buy Outlaw Star from uh, RightStuffAnime.com. That complete series is going to set you back about 38 bucks. And so that's the uh, Blu-ray release, the Blu-ray only release. If you go on Amazon.com, you can find the 2017 and the 2018 releases and that's going to set you back 35 bucks. However, if you just buy this one product from Amazon, you will likely get it shipped in this loose box with maybe some bubble wrap, like just some standard thing. But on Right Stuff, they do that custom wrap with every product. They keep that sucker tightly sealed. Plus, I mean, 38 bucks is really not that bad for 26 episodes. It's very reasonable. And there are regular publisher sales, so you can get that show even cheaper and also take advantage of free shipping on orders of 50 bucks or more in the U.S., and I think, honestly, it's going to be well worth your money. Um, even as I go into the kind of the concluding segment of the review roundup, you know, I've been singing this show's praise pretty much all through the episodes, but I do have a couple of gripes to air in the review roundup. But I mean, mostly it's not going to be anything that would, I would say, discourage you from buying this show. Absolutely worth your money, even at the $38 price point. And again, Funimation stuff regularly goes on sale. Plus, if you have a Got Anime membership, that takes another 10% off that already low price. So even with a Got Anime membership, that's going to get you below that $35 on Amazon, plus the better shipping. It's just best. And so as I mentioned, the cheaper option on Right Stuff Anime and the $50 free shipping, might I recommend another show to help get you over that 50 bucks via our next segment, the 15 seconds of fame. So no detectives, I did not forget about this segment. I just, I'm going to try and use this as a transition piece between the end of my main topic and transitioning into the review roundup. Kind of like a, like I've honestly, like I've dumped a lot of information on you. And I think something like the 15 seconds of fame is like to kind of refocus our brains for a little bit before I go into story time mode with what I think about Outlaw Star and it's a, just a nice little mental break for both myself, and I think it's been a nice little mental break for y'all. So, without further ado, this is our 15 seconds of fame. So here is your clue for this week's series. The format is a TV series and OVAs from the 1980s, of course produced by Sunrise Studio. Here is your clue. When your welfare is at stake and you're back against the wall, it would probably be best to make a call. But... Prepare for trouble and make a double. These angels may be lovely, but their reputation is dirty. And so, detectives, you have been given your clue, and now here is your audio clip. Let's see if you can figure out what this show might possibly be. Roll it. 
All right, detectives, I wonder if you know what this series might be. And for those of you who might want to pause and think about it for a little bit longer, feel free to do so at this time. But for the rest of us, three, two, one, let's go. So if you are in trouble, call the World Welfare Work Association, or the 3WA, and they will send you highly trained professional agents called trouble consultants to assist you. However, if you happen to be assigned the team known as the Dirty Pair, they will certainly solve your problem, but not without hilariously extreme collateral damage. Dirty Pair is a 26-episode series produced in 1985 by Studio Sunrise. Uh, 24 episodes made it to air before the series was canceled, so the last two episodes were released as OVAs. There are also other OVA projects with uh, multiple side stories and sequels that were released through the late 80s and the early 90s. And so I selected Dirty Pair for the 15 Seconds of Fame because it's a universe that is similarly wacky to Outlaw Star. The science fiction elements are mainly there for like parody. Each Every episode is also like fairly sterile standalone with some conflicts lasting about two, three episodes. But it's a lot of character comedy, the wacky hijinks, the verbal put downs alone are just particularly vicious. And so it just makes this series a very fun uh, watch in between your regular shows. So Dirty Pair, similar to Outlaw Star, in a lot of moments has its tongue uh, firmly in its cheek, and there's plenty of cheesecake to go around, a lot of uh, appealing character designs, I should say. And so thank you for playing. I hope you uh, check out the Dirty Pair as we go into our final stop for the episode, the review roundup. I will see you there. So as we once more dive into the review roundup, and as we near the conclusion of yet another episode of the podcast... I start to think about this is usually the portion that I tend to have the most nerves going into because usually like the research and development portion of the anime to me is like the easiest part. What I struggle with when I'm writing my notes for an episode and really when I'm sitting down and watching the show is I take just copious amounts of notes and with Outlaw Star in particular as I took more and more notes and as I was putting things together and writing the episode, I felt more and more that this might be a case of where I finally have to drop the C word for an episode. And that C word being, of course, comparisons. What I mean by that is when I'm reviewing a show, like sometimes I'll drop an allusion to another anime series or maybe uh, one of my favorites and just do like a little bit of light comparison but I try to avoid that as much as I can in my episodes because when I review something, I want to have it stand alone on its own merit. However, with the case of Outlaw Star, not only am I dropping the comparison word, I'm also dropping the other C word and also kind of like the elephant in the room, that elephant, of course, being Cowboy Bebop. On the more obvious side, you have the ragtag band of misfits who just kind of come together into this one spaceship or into this one situation that they share and occasionally go their separate ways. But at the end, they kind of come together as this newfound family aspect. Of course, they also do the bounty hunting aspect, although that's more of a part of out, uh, a Cowboy Peepop storyline than Outlaw Stars. It's more like a, an occasional thing, like very much a side activity. But I also think this is a dangerous path to walk on and something that I feel like a lot of critics at the time, again, this is just me uh, nitpicking about a 25-year-old 25 25 series, 
but it's something that I feel like a lot of the critics kind of unfairly focused on when they were reviewing Outlaw Star. In so many reviews that I read, it was said like Outlaw Star is great. It's uh, a bit meandering at times. It's kind of uh, a bit of a mess. Like the plot is indeed uh, a bit of a mess for Outlaw Star. And it's just constantly overshadowed by Cowboy Bebop in every single review that I read just about. Like it just can't escape it. And that kind of comes with the territory of being produced in the same year in the same studio. It is something to consider because I think if you're talking about a series with disjointed episodes with a kind of a tenuous narrative through line, if I were to compare Cowboy Bebop and Outlaw Star, how they handle this, Cowboy Bebop is much better suited to that format. Outlaw Star, I think, falls into this narrative trap of trying to almost be like its big brother in that aspect. And so my biggest frustration with Outlaw Star is that it continuously sets up and then or like teases these really cool story developments or like, here's what we're going to do and here's like our path forward. But then they don't really deliver. I understand that the whole goal of going after the Galactic Leyline, it's a nebulous goal. And there aren't really any clues about it. Not really a lot of people even know about it. However, the crew still spends a lot of their time uh, spinning their wheels, so to say. Like the narrative just kind of takes a back seat and they're just not really doing anything. Or like there are episodes where it feels like the show has completely forgotten that these guys are searching for a great treasure. I, I really love the side episodes in Outlaw Star. And if it was something that where the narrative was a little more cohesive... I really wouldn't have minded because side episodes and side uh, like these wacky adventures are really good breathing room when you have a more uh, serious plot going forward, which seems like something that Outlaw Star is setting up despite like the wackiness of its world. It's just it's hard to enjoy all these side episodes if they are immediately following a setup episode. For example, we have um, Outlaw Star has a, actually a great opening sequence, and I'm talking about the first couple of episodes. And really, like, the first half of the series is pretty well-paced, I would say. It's really once you get past the space race arc, and then you have the duel with the McDougal brothers. And it's shortly after that we have the introduction of Hazanko and the Assassins. And you have the appearance of the first Assassins, and now we're about in episode 15. And then after episode 15, the show just kind of falls apart. And it's something that was kind of a mystery to me in several aspects like we'd have a couple side adventures like there was a mind controlling cactus before this assassin showed up but episode 15 was just such a tonal shift it felt like that episode i think it's like episode four uh the one where uh, spike uh first meets vicious in the church and as he's rescuing faye valentine and cowboy bebop it's the one where you have him getting blown out like there's a grenade that goes off in the church and he gets blown out the window it's suddenly a very just mood swing for the series of Cowboy Bebop, and it really works for that show. And this is something that I almost felt like episode 15 was trying to do the same thing, but then episode 16 was just, oh, back to wacky hijinks. I think that was actually the women's wrestling episode. It was just like, just so weird. Gene goes from literally contemplating his own death and like giving up on his journey to, oh, now he has to dress like a woman to infiltrate this women's wrestling thing. But then he gets his butt kicked in the first round anyways. And so it's up to Aisha Clan Clan in a sexy cat girl outfit to disguise her identity and uh, try and win the tournament herself. And that's the one where we just have a random assassin that I didn't even know. I didn't even recognize her as one of the assassins because it just wasn't 
that telegraphed at first. Again, like the narrative after episode 16 is kind of like, is really just a mess. And as much as I love the characters, and especially our main character, Gene Starwin, I found myself getting more frustrated with him this go around. And I think that's just more of me being in my uh, 30s now with adult responsibilities and watching Gene Starwin just lays about the place when he doesn't have anywhere to go or like basically when the crew is furloughed and broke, just no money in the coffers and they're just having to do these. This is more like when some of the more wackier stuff ends up happening. And even when the scheme goes sideways, that episode, I mean, they pulled this like three times at least where they pull this kind of wacky, crazy job, it goes sideways. They either do make a lot of collateral damage that makes them go net zero, or just the plan doesn't work at all. And then they go to Fred Lowe anyways for an IOU. Like, if you're going to have the crew, and that's another thing that I found weird about the show as well. Like, why is the crew always broke? Like, I understand it as a, well, actually, I don't really understand it, because you can have it to where that they can be struggling with finances, but here's the thing, like, why is you have this entire colorful universe, you have all these alien races, you have all these prospects of planets and all these different factions running around. Like, why can't it just be these wacky adventures that they're having on basically an Earth-like area or like inside Blue Heaven? Why can't these same kind of wacky space adventures be happening, I don't know, just out in space? And this is something that I've noticed it kind of just really got on my nerves this go around of like, why do we spend so much time grounded? Like this is outlaw star. This is a space Western and the universe is just so much broader and it's so much more of like a planet hopping adventure. Why are they not just hopping from planet to planet, getting into some kind of weird situation? There might be one nugget or two of the galactic ley line that is going off. Yeah. The outlaw star crew is always borderline broke or like breaking even they're skimping on maintenance. Yeah, we're told all of this, but nothing really changes like once they actually go into battle. It is still funny to to watch the characters of like Twilight Suzuka obviously has her own deal and she ha- has a way of acquiring her own money through bounty hunts and her other various uh, contracts. But Aisha Clan Clan, for instance, like she's a very funny character, but it's very obvious at the very beginning that she is sent to Blue Heaven to kind of get out of the Empire's hair. Like, she probably caused some trouble back home, and then they're just putting her at this random outpost, and like, we'll call you. And she ends up ticking off everyone at the Blue Haven base, so she kind of teams up with Jean to get out of there. But now she doesn't really have any way to secure funding. The Qatar uh, Qatar Empire is not sending her any money anyways. So she always ends up working at some restaurant. Is there like a waitress or a delivery girl? It's very funny just watching her do odd jobs around town. So I like that aspect about it. But like, why is the crew always broke? Like, why is this an important part of the narrative? We never see just how broke they are. The outlaw star never looks worn down or beaten down. And it's a thing of like, yeah, okay, you're struggling with finances, but this kind of gets back to my point of why can't you have these wacky adventures on the ground and just all this kind of spinning your heels? Why can't you just have these wacky adventures in space and it's like, well, this person gave us some money for saving their life from some situation or, hey, we managed to, we, we man, that was lucky. We got out of that situation. Well, we found a little bit of treasure. Hey, we can sell this to such and so. And it's, it's a weird way that I feel like the money problems in this show really kind of hamstring it for me. Even in, even in battles where Gene's getting ready to go toe to toe with another ship, he starts complaining like about how much missiles cost and how much his anti-missile defenses are 
and he, he like pulls out the grappler arms and they get into a toss and he's like, oh man, I'm going to have to fix that later. Like I get it, but why is this here? It was an, it was an element of the show that I really think didn't need to be there. And it's just these small details that stick in my mind. Again, this is me just kind of sitting here griping about a 25 year old series but I think that's just, especially with, uh, like we, at the time of this recording, Bethesda's newest game, like Starfield just came out. And so there is a lot of time at the beginning of that game of, of course, running around one planet, but then like all this wacky stuff and just strange storylines and really fun side activities really open up after you get into a couple hours of that game. And so I, I just found myself subconscious, well, overtly consciously making these connections between Starfield and Outlaw Star. Like, man, why didn't Outlaw Star do this? Like every single time there was something interesting, you would have an episode or two of like really cool stuff happening. And then you would just have this episode of just some random thing going on that just completely broke the pace of the show. And speaking of like this entire universe to explore, we have in in the factions, where the hell are the space forces? Like we, I've, as I said, like there are three main factions in the universe. You've got the space pirates, which we see plenty of outlaws, which are just kind of like your general guys running around. And of course the outlaw hangers. And then you've got the space forces, which I I guess in general, these might just be the police, but even the police on the planets just seem to be more like that planets or like that town's police. They didn't really, there was nothing overtly space forces about them. In fact, I think the one episode where we really, really focused on the space forces was just one episode. And even these guys were subcontractors. And it said in the episode, like, yeah, frontier justice and all that, like the universe is a really harsh place and the space forces don't really care about uh, nuance. Like these guys are kind of jerks or, and even then like this one episode we have Gene Starwin, like the Outlaw Star is literally ambushed by a pirate spacecraft with a Space Forces ship looking on. And then Gene and the pirates are arrested together and the Space Forces accuse the Outlaw Star of being pirates after he's attacked the pirates. And now with this entire episode is, oh, the pirates are attacking and the Space Forces area is just getting blown up. Like this entire base is just getting absolutely destroyed. And so not only is Gene Starwin falsely accused, now he's being lumped in with the pirate attack. And even after he like takes out multiple pirates in front of the space cop who arrested him, the guy, and even then, like the guy's trapped under rubble. So not only does Gene Starwin take out the pirates who are about to kill this guy, he gets the guy out of the rubble. And the fellow just goes, well, I still think you're a space pirate, grumble, grumble, but I'm going to let you go. You seem like one of the good guys, but don't let me catch you next time. Like, dude, your base is blowing up. Why do you care about Gene Starwin at this point? And why do you still think he's up? It was just so weird. Like these are just space jerks. And even like this entire episode, I kept waiting to see like, oh, these guys are like actual jerks. Like, are they going to try and, I don't know, strip the outlaw stall for parts as part of a uh, acquisition or like, you know, we're going to acquire all these and then they're going to sell on the black market Are some of these guys corrupt. No, they're just jerks and they're very stupid jerks at that. And speaking of the Space Forces as well, like the XGP, the Outlaw Star itself, like these guys didn't run a scan on the ship. This wouldn't have caused any kind of red flag. Like, remember, the Outlaw Star is this joint venture between the Space Forces and the pirates. It's this big hush-hush thing. Obviously, the Space Pirates, uh, the K-Pirates know that this uh, Outlaw Star is missing because Hilda stole it from them. But like, you wouldn't have thought that maybe some of those inside guys would have tipped off their Space Forces buddies, or at the very least... This uh, race 
in episodes 10 and 11, I believe, was very highly televised. You don't think one of those Space Forces guys would have looked at the TV screen going, hey, wait a minute. It just felt so odd that one faction that is like the pillar of this universe is entirely missing. It really bugged me for some reason. And so I know it feels like I've spent the past 10, 15 minutes or so just tearing this show a new one. But remember, I have just been giving this show nothing but praise in the main body, and all of that is true as well. So it's this mixture of, when I look back at Outlaw Star, it's something that I remember this show for the character designs and the character interactions themselves. I think even during the episodes that made me roll my eyes or just groan, like, man, this is this feels like I'm, my time is being wasted. Like, even in those episodes, the characters remain entertaining and most importantly, they remain consistent. And I think that's kind of what saves the whole journey for me. If I'm talking about all my gripes that I've had and with the universe and like just kind of the missed potential of this series. And I think it's something that plagued the manga and this show and kind of fed into a little bit of maybe why we haven't seen anything in the last uh, well quarter century. But Again, this is a universe just absolutely rich with potential. Like Outlaw Star is the kind of project that is, that I believe, is just screaming for at least an anniversary project or some kind of revival project. I really think there is a, just a ton of potential here. And just give it more consistency and kind of decide on your plot beforehand, I think, would help it out a little bit better. Because that finale is especially messy. And it's a real shame with the finale as well, because... Again, I said this earlier about the assassins, like, because like half of these assassins, like literally they get introduced, I think in episode 14 or 16 is that narrative thing, or it could be episode 15 where he actually had the first guy show up. I think it was actually episode 15 where the assassins were introduced by name and their general abilities. And three of these guys literally get introduced in that episode and then they do not show up until the finale. And there's one in particular that has this connection or seemingly has this connection to Twilight Suzuka. And there's an entire backstory here that could have been explored because Twilight Suzuka and Aisha Klein Klein, like their backstories are just a complete mystery. It is like there is like no information given at all as far as some of their dealings. Like there is a narration on both of them, but that is all we ever get about them. But then all of a sudden we have this assassin who shows up. And it's this really surprising connection to Suzuka. And in their fight, they basically go through like that. The, really, the finale of the show feels like the creators ran out of time. And it's like, well, oh, crap. Well, here's in three episodes. Here are all the other cool ideas that we had for these characters. But the show's over. So bye bye. Like one of the assassins just gets one shot by Gene Starwind. Another one gets in a fight with Aisha Clan Clan. And again, she kind of just kills this guy off screen. Well, she kills them on screen, but I mean, their fight, the majority of their fight takes place off screen, just off to the side because there's simply no time to show it. And then even when she's done, like she she does her full beast mode transformation. And then like one of the last shots we get of Aisha Clan Clan is, oh, she's naked again. Okay, cool. Thanks for that. It's just something, even Hazanko himself just was this really just reeks of missed potential. And I think in scattered episodes, this show really holds its own and it's also just in the animation like again the animation is just absolutely stellar when i think back on outlaw star even before going into this most recent rewatch in my mind i was thinking of you know that iconic red ship these iconic characters and the mcdougall brothers 
and just how fluid and smooth and dynamic all these fights were and just how consistently good the characters were. And so one thing I want to kind of conclude on is despite all of my issues with the show, I really do love this series in a way. I don't love it as much as I would say maybe Trigun. I think the there if I were to make it a comparison between Outlaw Star, Trigun and Bebop, it's still kind of like at the bottom of my of of my list, but only because of the narrative uh, footballs, I guess you could say like from the peanuts, because they keep offering saying, we're going to do this cool thing. And then the very next episode, whoop, you missed the football very much a Charlie Brown style. But that being said, I, I think the journey is a very fun uh, visual experience. If you haven't seen outlaw star before, I would certainly say, give it a shot. If you have access to Hulu or funimation.com, I wouldn't say immediately just go out and buy this show, but if you have any kind of nostalgia for the show, maybe you saw it on Toonami the last time, I would still say like, let's check it out on streaming, see how it holds up. This is another example maybe of how I think like the Trigun, uh, when I said that episode of like the journey is greater than the destination. I think this is also another lesson from episode two, Ronan Warriors of, I had a lot of nostalgia for that show, but it didn't quite hold up on the rewatch yet it didn't exactly tarnish the good memories that I had of the show. I think it's perfectly fine to go back and revisit a show like Outlaw Star and face it square on and say, yeah, you have all of these various flaws, but your strengths are still very obvious to me, and all the things that I love about you are still present, and in fact, probably even more enhanced now that this series is available on Blu-ray. And so, again, I completely uh, am fine with my purchase. I love my Blu-rays of Outlaw Star. I'm never getting rid of them. In fact, if there's a even higher quality deal or if I need to replace my Blu-rays for any reason, I will gladly do so. So despite it may seem like I've just torn this show a new one, I really do love Outlaw Star. And I think you will too. And I kind of want to conclude on one part that I really feel also shines through about Gene's character, because this is something that I noticed a lot more uh, this go around as well, is because he is, for for all of my quibbles about him kind of being a layabout when there's nowhere to go or like no one to punch in the face or like no destination, no clear destination, he's not exactly an idea guy. And my chief complaint is that a lot of things He doesn't really learn from a lot of his mistakes because of his just luck factor. Things just fall into his lap. And I am now going back on the negative again. But the true core of Gene Starwin is I find him a very genuinely caring person. And that is from the moment that he meets Melfina. Because we've already seen him. His introduction is this scrapper guy, like kind of like a jocked style hero. I'm only looking out for number one. And then he meets Melfina, and the first thing that he does is he takes off his coat and he covers her. From the beginning, he treats her as a person, even though it's very obvious that there's something otherworldly about her, or there's something not quite human about her, as she is indeed a android, or as they call like a bioroid. Everyone involved in the secret XGP project and those who were involved in, they all call her a tool. And Jean, from the day one, refers to Melfina as a person. And not only does he refer to her as a person, he makes her a promise that he will help her discover the secrets to her past. And even beyond that, he never 
tries to railroad her into something that she doesn't want to do. Gene Starwind respects Melfina's agency, and he helps her develop as a person. And that, I think, is something that really speaks to the true core of his character. I really do love this cast, and I love how the crew of the Outlaw Star, even though they are also very aware of how incompetent Gene Starwind can be at times, they also recognize him as when he is, like when Gene Starwind is on, he gets things done. And I think after episode 15 is really when the crew really starts to come together and you have that found family aspect, which adds this extra dimension to the series. And so I hope you've enjoyed a slightly more rambling edition of the review roundup. It was kind of a more of a roundabout fashion of the review roundup. But I hope even with the criticisms, and I think these are some pretty significant criticisms to lobby against the show and things that in the past 25 years have not really aged well about the show or its narrative, I still think that at its core, the characters are just super solid. I love how they all come together. I love their dynamic. And I love the animation of this show. I love the spaceships and I love the spaceships punching each other in the nose. I really do think that despite everything that I've said for, for uh, positive and negative, that Outlaw Star is not only worth your time to at least check out for yourself and see if you agree with my criticisms, but it is worth your consideration as part of your uh, collection on your media shelf. I love my Blu-rays. And if anything should happen to them, I am looking for a replacement immediately. Nothing should happen to them because I take very good care of them. And so I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Treehouse Anime Club podcast. And I hope you enjoy Outlaw Star. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 